0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website.
1: We're going to line up here, and we've got the exciting conclusion of our uh, drawings. I know... All the budding Ram- Rembrandts and uh, Galileos and Picassos out there. <laughs> I won't ask uh, which artist your drawings most resemble, but um, uh, we're gonna we're gonna finish off tonight uh, with the final boxes in our um, investigation of salvation history, and um, so. When last we met, we uh, were actually talking about um, the Davidic Covenant. I'll just, oh, went back too far. So a little review here, Davidic Covenant. So this is our fifth box. And uh, we talked about the main points of the Davidic Covenant. King would be the son of God and would build the temple and rule the whole world. And um, we talked about its decline and eventual exile. And during that time, uh, when the kingdom of David uh, was in decline because of the recalcitrance of uh, David's uh, heirs, um, God was not inactive by any means, but he was sending the prophets uh, to warn the people of God to turn back to him and so this is what our sheet should look like Uh, in the big boxes we have the representation of all the uh, different covenants so far each of which was solemnized on a mountaintop and that's not accidental of course because mountaintops are natural places of encounter with God. Uh, Father was talking to us about the revelation of God in nature And he talked about St. Barbara uh, being in that tower from which she had that vantage point where she could see um, a lot of the natural world. And and she was impressed with uh, the truth of uh, one creator God. And uh, mountaintops do that for you. Mountaintops give you that perspective on all of creation. Um, The view from the top of a mountain strikes a person with awe and often serves to Help a person uh, see the handiwork of God in the creation roundabout and uh, get a kind of divine perspective. Because after all, when we are on a mountaintop, we see things, as it were, as God sees them. uh, Looking down from above, things look small, uh, as it were, from God's perspective. And so we see that, uh, that divine perspective on the world. And often it helps us to sense God's presence. And um, so God uses these natural things like mountaintops to help us to feel his presence. And they become special places of encounter. And even to this day, um, and and throughout the history of the church, the church has chosen hills and prominent locations on which to build basilicas. Uh, We think of um, uh, Franciscan University built on a hilltop. We think of uh, Mount St. Angel, um, uh, yeah, Mount St. Angel uh, Seminary out in, Oregon, uh, beautiful, beautiful um, uh, Abbey and a Seminary on a mountaintop. We think of Mount Saint Mary's in Emmitsburg, uh, Maryland, and so on and so on. Um, institutions and churches built on mountaintops. So that's not accidental. There is a a method to that madness. There's a there's a rhyme to that. Uh, there's a reason to that rhyme. And uh, so here we are on this. Uh, fifth mountaintop, the Davidic, and we're proceeding into the prophetic era, which is a time in which um, God's revelation was becoming clearer and clearer, even as uh, the kingdom of David was moving farther and farther from uh, God's will. So, um, let's begin uh, with our sixth box now, and we're we're going to be talking about this stage of. Salvation history that we're going to call the New Covenant in the Prophets. And the prophets largely ministered in the Jerusalem area, which can also be called Mount Zion. Um, As Jesus would later say, can any prophet die outside of Jerusalem? Jerusalem was the place for both the careers and usually the deaths of most of the prophets, with only a couple of exceptions. And so on Mount Zion, let's do our generalized prophet here. And we give him the big mouth, which is distinctive of the prophets. Uh, The prophets spoke boldly. They made good use of the big mouth and uh, tended to get them in trouble. And um, the prophets who ministered, we think of ones like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, they all basically had a twofold message. We might call it a bad news and a good news message. And the bad news that the prophets proclaimed to the people of Israel was that Israel, you are under judgment because you've violated the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, the Mosaic Covenant had those commandments, like the Ten Commandments, as well as many other laws and if you violated those commandments you fell under a curse and we talked about the curses of the mosaic covenant a little bit in an earlier session but if you read for example the end of the book of deuteronomy say chapters uh, 27 28 through say 32 you'll see so many curses that are called down if you violate uh, the commandments of god And so the prophets came and said, look, these uh, these curses of the covenant are going to come down on your head unless you repent. So that was the bad news. But the good news was this. God is going to bring a new covenant, and this new covenant is going to involve the restoration of all the good things of the Davidic. So next to our stylized prophet here, we are going to basically sketch in the the images of the davidic covenant so and we're going to use dotted lines to do it we're going to make it a faint okay and the reason why we're using dotted lines to draw in the davidic king there and uh, the reason we're using dotted lines to sketch in the temple is that these are a future reality at the time that the prophet is speaking So the prophet just sees this in the distance. He sees this shadowy. He sees a a, a great, uh, indeed a perfect son of David, who's also son of God, who's going to come in the future, as we see, for example, in Isaiah 9. And and the prophet sees a future glorified temple uh, of perfection that will come one day, as Ezekiel does in Ezekiel 40 through 48. But it's a future vision. It's faint and it's shadowy. So we sketch that in with dotted lines. And uh, that's the good news. You know, a new covenant is coming that's going to involve the restoration of all the good things of the um, Davidic. So now um, we're going to look at some of these passages from the prophets now, where the prophets predict uh, a new covenant that is going to restore. Uh, all the good things of the Davidic. And uh, since Danny said you were all um, Bible scholars, uh, we're going to go more in depth than I usually do uh, on this presentation. And we're going to expand some of the texts. So I, I usually just use some snippets. We're going to use look at some expanded um, text tonight uh, because you guys are up to it. Um, so, the, the main text that we're going to begin with when we're talking about the New Covenant in the Prophets is we're going to look at the one passage of the Old Testament that uses the exact phrase New Covenant. Now, here's something for your Bible trivia. Ne- next time that you're playing Bible Trivial Pursuit, you know, and, and the question card asks the question, what is the one passage? Of the Old Testament where the phrase New Covenant appears and it is Jeremiah 31 31 the chapter and verse number are the same so it's a little bit easy to remember Jeremiah 31 31 it's the only place in the entire Old Testament where the term New Covenant is used so it's very very important for our faith um, because when the Eucharist is called the New and Eternal Covenant at every Mass we're making an allusion to this famous prophecy of Jeremiah, which he uttered uh, back in the late 600s and the early 500s BC, long before our Lord came, a half a millennia before the coming of our Lord. So let's look at this uh, passage, and it's not just a verse, but the whole oracle is Jeremiah 31, verse 31 through 34. And it's a passage that every Catholic should be very familiar with it's one of those pivotal passages uh like this fulcrum passage like we talked about last week as was the case with um, <coughs> excuse me second samuel 7. <coughs> <coughs> Oh lord lord help my voice okay um you get something to suck on here but um We're going to look at this passage. So let's uh, observe it and read it here. It says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. Now this passage, brothers and sisters, is extremely dense. It's extremely rich. You know, very rich. And I want to I want to expand it with you so you have a good understanding of what's going on in each verse as we go through here. So let's take it step by step. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. This is what Jeremiah is saying. Jeremiah is always vague, very vague about when exactly this is going to come. It's And all the prophets are. They're vague about when this is going to happen. They usually use phrases like, in the latter days, or The day is coming or when the day of the Lord arrives or something like this. So it's coming in the future, Jeremiah says. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, brothers and sisters, those are not synonyms. The house of Israel, and the house of Judah are not the same thing. The house of Israel was the northern kingdom that consisted of 10 tribes that broke away from David after Um, the death of Solomon. The house of Judah was the southern kingdom that uh, consisted of the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Benjamin, uh, also to be technical, the tribe of Simeon, and most of the Levites. And they were faithful to the Davidic uh, heir and to the Davidic covenant, and uh, they were in the south. And so the, the house of Israel and the house of Judah are the two divisions of the people of God after it was split following the death of Solomon. And in this famous prophecy of the new covenant, Jeremiah says, God's going to make a new covenant. and It's going to include both kingdoms, both kingdoms. And you might say to yourself, well, why is that relevant to the New Testament? Why is that relevant? Well, this is why it's relevant. It's relevant, first of all, because it explains why. Our Lord goes after the Samaritans. Okay. And he does this in the Gospels. And then in Acts 6, the apostles follow up with a big outreach, evangelistic outreach to the Samaritans. And what we have to keep in mind was that by the time we get to G- the, the days of Jesus, the Samaritans are the last living, visible descendants of the northern house of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. And since the new covenant was promised to them, and not just to the Jews, you see, we all think that Jew and Israel means the same thing, but they don't. Okay? An Israelite can come from any of the twelve tribes, but a Jew comes from the tribe of Judah. You know, I was thirty years old before I realized the the term Jew comes from Judah. And that's what it is, a descendant of Judah. So a Jew and an Israelite are not, this, not necessarily the same thing. Israelite is the bigger category. All Jews are Israelites, so they're the small Venn diagram circle within the bigger Venn diagram circle of Israelites, okay? So if you're a Jew, you are an Israelite. But if you're an Israelite, you're not necessarily a Jew. Samaritans were Israelites, but they were not Jews. And so we see Jesus, for example, in John 4, going after the Samaritans. He intentionally travels through Samaria, and he evangelizes that Samaritan woman at the well. And boy, we could, we could spend the rest of the evening talking about that passage in John 4, because when, when Jesus does that, what he's actually doing is fulfilling Hosea 1 through 3, a passage which some of you are familiar with. It's, it's some of the most romantic nuptial imagery in the whole Old Testament about how God comes as a bridegroom to woo his people back to him. But what people don't uh, recognize is that Hosea was preaching to the northern kingdom of Israel specifically. And so when Jesus comes in John 4 and he evangelizes that woman of Samaria, what Jesus is doing is fulfilling the prophecies of Hosea, which by the way are also very covenantal and also closely related to this passage of Jeremiah that we're looking at. And and Jesus is wooing the people of Samaria back to him because they are northern Israel, and he, Jesus, is their divine bridegroom who is come to woo, woo them back to himself. But we can't go too much further into John 4 at this point. But I just want you to see that when this passage says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, those are not throwaway synonymous lines. That, that, there's a distinction there. So the idea is all 12 tribes are going to be involved in this new covenant. Then it goes on. and says, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Now, what covenant was that, brothers and sisters? <laughs> the Mosaic. Okay. So this new covenant is not going to be like the Mosaic. And uh, it's interesting. Here's another. Here's another tidbit for the next time you're, ta- you're, you're, you're playing uh, biblical Trivial Pursuit. And the question is, what is the longest quotation of the Old Testament in the New Testament? And the answer to that question is um, uh, uh, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. This oracle about the new covenant. Uh, is in fact the longest quotation uh, in the New Testament and it occurs in uh, Hebrews chapter 8. Okay, so that's where you find the entire passage uh, that we're looking at right now uh, quoted. So, um, uh, very good. And why does the author of Hebrews quote this passage? He quotes it because. Um, when when uh, this author, who, whom I believe to be St. Paul, uh, with the help of uh, probably St. Luke, is writing to early Jewish Christians and trying to explain to them uh, how you can show that um, a new covenant was necessary. Because the Jews by large thought, well, what's wrong with the old covenant? What's wrong with the law of Moses? Can't we just keep following that? And in Hebrews it says, no, You can't keep following the law of Moses. There was something wrong with the law of Moses. And one of the things the author does is he quotes this passage from Jeremiah and makes the point that if the Mosaic covenant was perfect, then Jeremiah would not have prophesied that God was going to bring a new covenant that was not like it, okay? That was different and better than the Mosaic. So a rather simple point. That the author makes but he quotes most of jeremiah 31 31 through 34 in uh that passage so the new covenant is coming it's not going to be like the mosaic covenant not like the covenant which i made with their fathers i took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of egypt my covenant which they broke when did they do that at the golden calf and then ten times wandering through the wilderness and then he says though i was their husband says the lord and this is a beautiful uh, passage here. Let me go back to it. My covenant which they broke, though I was their husband. Here, uh, the prophet Jeremiah uses a Hebrew phrase. That's what we call a double entendre or a double meaning. Okay? The Hebrew phrase that Jeremiah uses can be translated into English in one of two ways. Either, as we have it here, my covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, and what this refers to is the nuptial dimension of the Mosaic covenant. To this day, the Jews look back at Mount Sinai as a kind of betrothal when God betrothed himself to the people of Israel, and as it were, the marriage contract was the Ten Commandments and the other stipulations of the Mosaic law. So you find that in many places in the prophets that they regard uh, Mount Sinai the covenant there as the marriage between god and israel and so that's being reflected in this translation though i was their cousin their husband so they broke the covenant that was like an act of adultery against the divine bridegroom however the phrase can also be translated this way my covenant which they broke and i had to show myself to be their master says the lord okay and When we translate it that way, what what does that mean? My covenant which they broke, and I had to show myself to be their master. What Jeremiah is referring to there is the way that after the golden calf, the terms of the covenant become increasingly harsh. Remember when we did that, that animation of the Mosaic covenant, and we saw after the calf, we brought in those other tablets of law from Leviticus, And then we wandered through the wilderness. And then we had the big scroll of of Deuteronomy at the end when Moses was unhappy with a big frown. And, And we talked about how Deuteronomy was like martial law. And so when you look at the Pentateuch, when they have that marriage at Mount Sinai, the initial law is very light and very undemanding. It's just basically the moral law. But by the time all these violations and all these adulterous covenant breaking events have happened, the calf and the wandering through the wilderness, the covenant becomes less like husband and wife and it becomes more like master and maidservant. And um, and that's because God is, is trying to restrain the people of Israel from their behavior. So. We see both dimensions there, Jeremiah using this this loaded phrase that can be taken one of two ways, either uh, though I was their husband or and I had to show myself to be their master, says the Lord. Okay, well, let's go on for these next verses in this same oracle. And the Lord explains, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it upon their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, when he says, I will put my law within them and write it upon their hearts, Jeremiah is intending an intentional contrast with the Mosaic law, which was written on tablets of stone. So you have this external, hard, cold surface versus this internal, uh, loving, intimate surface on which the law will be written. So that's the intended contrast. So the law is going to be internalized. And we. Um, we could see this fulfilled in principle at Pentecost, where uh, the feast of Pentecost, which was, by the way, a Jewish feast, it still is a Jewish feast to this day. It's the only Jewish, uh, it's only feast that is shared by both Judaism and Christianity that we both observe to this day. And the Jewish feast of Pentecost was a celebration of the giving of the Law at Mount Sinai. So here, the people of God at Pentecost in Acts two. Are gathered at, at, at Zion um, for the celebration of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And God pours out the new law, because as Saint Thomas Aquinas teaches us, the new law of the new covenant is nothing other than the grace of the Holy Spirit. So God pulls out the new law, and it comes down, and Peter is empowered by the Spirit. He preaches, and at the end of his sermon, it says in Acts two thirty-seven that the people were cut to the heart. Now, that is a very powerful image because in ancient times, one of the ways that you wrote was by cutting into clay tablets. Um, Or in the case of Moses, uh, in his day, you would put a coating of plaster over stone tablets and it would harden onto that stone surface and then you would inscribe into the plaster. And that's referred to actually in the book of Joshua as Joshua Uh, plastered stones and then wrote the law so you would you would sometimes cut by inscribing and so peter preaches to the people at pentecost and they are cut to the heart and we can almost see this as a fulfillment of this idea of writing now the law upon the heart and then and then they say what shall we do to be saved and peter says repent be baptized and you will receive the holy spirit and they do that the spirit comes inside of them And so the spirit inside of those early Christians is really the law of God inside of them. And uh, and then it says here, I will be their God and they shall be my people. We talked about that, I think, last week as an example of uh, what we call the covenant formula. Scholars call this the covenant formula. And it's a variation on the Israelite wedding formula or the wedding vow where the husband typically would pronounce, I will be your husband and you shall be my wife i shall be your ish and you shall be my isha and here in the context of god as people of course it's not ish and isha but it's uh, their god uh, elohechem and uh, my people uh, me okay uh, but it's but it, but since these words are taken from that marital ceremony that marital vow it has that nuptial dimension once more. Now, as long as we're talking about nuptiality and kind of this marriage between God and his people, um, I want to just mention that we're coming up on the one day of the church year where uh, the Song of Songs is employed uh, in the in the liturgical calendar as the first reading. Well, there, there's another one too, and that's the feast day of uh, St. Mary Magdalene. But... We're coming up on uh december 21st and on december 21st the um the first reading for mass uh, which when you go to daily mass which i'm sure every one of you does uh then you're going to hear proclaimed in the first reading um songs chapter two which is what i tell my students is is the elopement chapter of the song of songs and I, I hear we're going to be talking about the song of songs in the future Uh, Series in um, in the ICC and that's that's awesome. Okay, that's absolutely awesome that you're taking this song song is so beautiful But anyway, Song of Songs chapter 2 is about the bridegroom bounding down out of the hills And he comes up to the garden where the bride is staying and invites her basically to run off and wed him Like what on earth and by the way, it's all full of springtime imagery and flowers and birds and stuff like this It's like, okay, so we're in the depths of winter and we're about to have a baby be born and then we have this springtime passage about these two lovebirds about to run off into the hills and get married. You know, what on earth does this have to do with Christmas? And why are we reading it just a few days before Christmas Eve? And it's because um, the church fathers, especially the Eastern fathers, um, saw in the incarnation, okay, the, the, the taking on of flesh by the second person of the Trinity, they saw that as the wedding of human nature with divine nature. The two natures are now wed in one person. They've become one flesh, right? And isn't that like marriage when the two persons become one? So so God and man become one in the person of, of Jesus Christ. And so it's the divine nuptiality. And so the little baby in the manger is already the great bridegroom who has espoused himself to human nature. And, uh, and, then, and then the wise men show up with these nuptial gifts of gold and uh, frankincense and myrrh. And if you look into where frankincense and myrrh occur in the Old Testament, they're only mentioned together uh, in the Song of Songs, which is the great wedding poem of the Old Testament. So and, and the gold is associated with Solomon, who had more gold than any other person in the Old Testament. So And Solomon, of course, is the great bridegroom because he had you know, 700 wives and 300 porcupines. I mean, concubines, there I go with that uh, uh, famous statement that one of my students wrote on a test paper once. But anyway, um, 700 wives and and 300 concubines. So he was having a wedding uh, every weekend for his entire adult life. So Solomon was the great bridegroom of the Old Testament. Here come the three wise men from the East, just as wise men from the east came to hear Solomon, check it out in First Kings chapter 4, wise men coming from the east to visit this little baby who is one greater than Solomon is here, right? And This little baby. And here these wise men come with the Solomonic gold and the frankincense and myrrh that calls to mind the Song of Songs, that great wedding uh, poem of the Old Testament as they celebrate the nuptiality of divine and human nature in the incarnation. Well, anyway... Getting back to Jeremiah 31, 33 here, this is the covenant I will make with them in those days. I'll put my law within them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So that's like a nuptial embrace. And then let's look at this last verse of this oracle from Jeremiah. He says, no longer shall each man teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest is the Lord. Okay, so this means that in the New Covenant, there will no longer be uh, any use for catechesis. And apostolates like the Institute for Catholic Culture can shut their doors. And uh, we could do away with them and Franciscan University and such because there's no need for education. Everybody have immediate divine infused knowledge of the faith, right? Well, no, okay, that's not exactly what this is saying about the New Covenant. Because we need to remember that in Hebrew, this term, no, has different senses. It can mean both head knowledge and it can mean personal intimacy. Now, the Germans are great because the Germans distinguish these two ideas. They have a word Wissen, like Wissenschaft. And I know uh, Professor Garland had to learn German for his doctoral program, as did I. And um, So you have Wissenschaft, which is like scientific knowledge from the root Wissen, which means to know in that uh, head knowledge kind of way. But then you have the German word Kennen, which means to know someone intimately. So, uh, ich weiß Biologie, I, I know biology, you know, studied it, but ich kenne meine uh, mein Frau uh, Dawn, okay. I I, I am uh, personally familiar with my wife Don, okay, and other people that know. Now in English and in Hebrew, They both just have one word, no, to cover both these ideas. And uh, so we remember in these older translations of the Bible how it would say Adam knew his wife and she conceived, and that referred to marital embrace, right? So we already saw that marital language of I will be your God and you will be my people, like the divine human wedding there. And now it says, No one will teach his neighbor, saying, No Lord, they shall all know me for the least of the greatest. I think we should take this in the sense of personal intimacy. So it's not so much that we don't need to be catechized about the truths of the faith, but it's that through baptism and through confirmation, through the sacraments, we have a personal experience of God, okay? Personal intimacy with him. And um, because of that, um, we can have had knowledge, but we don't need to be introduced to God in an experiential way because we do all, from the least of us to the greatest, we do all experience him in the sacraments. So they shall all know me from the least unto the greatest, says the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And so forgiveness is very much wrapped up with the new covenant and all of this. And that's just like Pentecost. It's just like Pentecost, where they're cut to the heart, when the law is written on their heart through the gift of the Holy Spirit. But Peter says, when they ask, what must we do to be saved? He says, repent. Be baptized, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of your sins. Okay, so <coughs> Peter is—excuse <coughs> me—announcing the fulfillment of the new covenant there um, at Pentecost. Okay, so we've seen how Jeremiah um, uh, promises the um, the fulfillment of um, the new covenant in the future, and let's look at some of the other prophets as well. Let's look at uh, Isaiah. Here's this passage that uh, we looked at a little bit, um, I believe it was last week. This is Isaiah 53 verses 1 through 3, um, a passage that has many themes uh, similar uh, to um, the passage of Jeremiah that we just looked at. Um, This is a passage that's used in the Easter Vigil. It's, uh, if if I recall, it's the fifth reading of the Easter Vigil and it says this, "Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money come by and eat, come by wine and milk without money and without price." Okay? So the God here is crying out to the poor, okay? Because who's thirsty if it's not poor people? And who has no money if it's not poor people? So God is calling out to the poor of the earth and saying, "Come to a free meal." Okay, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Okay, so that's verse 1, Isaiah 55, verse 1. God calling out to the inhabitants of the earth to come to, for the poor of the earth, to come to a free meal. And then it continues in verse 2. Hearken diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in fatness. So, listening carefully to the word of God is somehow closely related to eating what is good and delighting ourselves in fatness. Um, that's interesting. That makes us think of, you know, uh, uh, liturgy of the word and then liturgy of the Eucharist, right? So, and then thirdly, incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Now, look at this. Here, Isaiah, Isaiah never uses the term new covenant. But instead, he likes the phrase everlasting, or we could say eternal covenant. Now, in Mass, we combine both Jeremiah's term, new covenant, with Isaiah's term, eternal covenant. We say this this is the new and eternal covenant in my blood, right? So, so but look at this. I'm going to make with you the eternal covenant. This, of course, is talking about the new covenant. But then Isaiah identifies it as my steadfast, sure love for David. And steadfast, sure love is one word in Hebrew. It's the word chesed, okay, which we've talked about before. And that's that word that means covenant fidelity, okay? I'm going to make with you an eternal covenant, the covenant fidelity of David. And that is what we call like an exegetical phrase there. That means that uh, the chesed of David explains what the eternal covenant is. Okay, the eternal covenant is basically the covenant fidelity that I offered to David. In other words, it's a renewal of the Davidic covenant. Okay, so this is connecting the eternal covenant to the Davidic covenant here in Isaiah 55.3. That really what the eternal covenant is, is this renewal and reinvigoration of uh, the Davidic. And so when we put this all together, what we have is God calling out to the poor of the earth, come to a free meal. If you come to this free meal, you will enter into an eternal covenant, which is nothing other than the renewal of the Davidic covenant. Gosh, uh, I wonder where he's going with that. <laughs> I wonder how they oh a covenant meal of the future that's free. I don't know. Maybe later I'll understand. All right. So that's that reading from the Easter Vigil. And then let's look at what Ezekiel, the third great prophet of the Israelite tradition, look at what he says. A little shorter passage there. On behalf of God, Ezekiel says, I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. That means the Davidic kingdom and its covenant are going to be restored among God's people. And I will make with them a covenant of peace. Okay. Jeremiah said new covenant. Isaiah said eternal covenant. Ezekiel likes to say covenant of peace. Why does he say covenant of peace? In Hebrew, it's the barith shalom. The covenant of peace shalom is an idea, a very rich idea of peace that harks back to the peaceful garden of Eden. And uh, Ezekiel likes this idea of the covenant of peace because he sees it as the renewal of Eden. Okay. Okay. And you might say, well, how is the new covenant that we experience it in, at Mass, how is that a renewal of Eden? Well, very simple. The main thing about Eden was that there was the river of life flowing out of it, and the tree of life was present there. And every time you walk into a Catholic church, you look at the baptismal font, and that baptismal font is nothing other than the river of life. And you look at the altar, and the altar is nothing other than the tree of life that's going to bear the fruit of the tree of life, which is the body and blood of Christ hung on the tree of the cross. So Mass actually brings you back so that you have access to those sources of life that once were reserved only in Eden. And that's how Mass is the renewal of the Adamic covenant, or that the, the Edenic situation. It's the covenant of peace. So Ezekiel says, I will make with them a covenant of peace, so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And um, that's not talking about, you know, excessive camping in the New Covenant. Uh, You know, we're all going to go up into uh, Shenandoah uh, National Park up there uh, by Danny and, uh, uh, you know, (laughs) sleep out of doors with the bears and the deer. Uh, You can do that. I did that when I was a kid. We were uh, stationed in Quantico, which is not far from some of you uh, down there in Northern Virginia. I used to camp up there. But now what he says, securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods, these are images of Eden. And he really sees the new covenant as restoring Eden, restoring that Adamic creational situation. So we've looked at uh, those three uh, great prophets. And here, let's close before we move on to now to the Eucharistic covenant. Let's close by looking at this promise of Isaiah. He says, on this mountain, which is Mount Zion, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of fat things, a feast of wine on the lees. I'm not exactly sure what lees are, but I think it's a good thing because it's associated with banqueting and wine, which is, which, you know, wine is always good, okay? Uh, wine lees, fat things full of marrow, of wine on the lees well refined, and he will destroy on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over the nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. So here Isaiah is promising that sometime in the future, in latter days, God is going to act on Mount Zion to bring a a rich feast that is going to be for all the people of the earth, and it's going to remove the darkness from the eyes of the peoples of the earth, and it's going to be—it's going to bring life. It's going to bring eternal life to people—a a banquet of eternal life that begins on Mount Zion and is offered to all the nations of the earth. And I bet you could see where that is going as well. So um, uh, we're going to move now from the prophets who prophesied these good things. And this is what our diagram should look like at this point. Um, Down here, you you could have written in uh, the new covenant in the prophets. I forgot to write that in down here. But we've got our image of uh, of the prophet and (coughs) the uh, Davidic stuff in dotted lines. And then up in the corner where we have the meal, uh, we have this uh, banquet of food and wine, food and wine here. (coughs) <coughs> on the mountain, <coughs> and we're just going to sketch in Isaiah 27. I'm sorry, goodness, I forgot to correct that. That should be Isaiah 25 there, Isaiah 25, that reference to that banquet that's associated with the New Covenant in Isaiah 25. All right, let's move on now to our last box, our seventh box, and this is going to be the what we're going to call the Eucharistic Covenant. That our Lord brings now, the Eucharistic Covenant is uh, the same as the New Covenant, but I just distinguish them. I call it the New Covenant when it's being prophesied, and I call it the Eucharistic Covenant when it is fulfilled. And Jesus comes to fulfill the prophets of the pro- the promises of the prophets that a new covenant would come someday. Not only that, but Jesus really comes to fulfill all the covenants, and that's apparent from the beginning of the New Testament, from the very first verse. Matthew 1 1 says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In that one verse, Matthew connects Jesus to the concepts of a new Adam, a new David, and a new Abraham. That is to say, one who has come to fulfill all the promises of those covenants. First of all, the book of the genealogy is a loaded phrase because that phrase occurs only one other place in scripture. and That's in Genesis 5, 1, which begins the book of the genealogy of Adam. So look at the the two phrases in comparison. How do they differ? Well, one is of Adam, the other is of Jesus. So what's Matthew doing? He's setting up an obvious juxtaposition or an obvious comparison that suggests that Jesus is a second Adam come now to renew all the things that Adam should have done. So the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then he says, the son of David. You see, not a son of David, but the son of David. Now, there were many sons of David running around in Israel in the first century. It's not common knowledge, but if we read the historian Josephus, we find that there are many people that had the royal blood and uh, they were considered a political threat, and they were persecuted, etc. But Jesus was not simply a person with royal blood. He was the person with royal blood. That means to say he is the heir. And then Matthew goes on to prove it by giving the whole genealogy of Jesus, which is the reading for uh, Christmas Eve. And then um, then he says the son of Abraham, not simply a son of Abraham, but the son of Abraham again all the Jews were sons of Abraham but Jesus is not simply a descendant but he's the descendant that is to say the heir the one who's come to fulfill that promise that was given to Abraham through your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed so really what we have is the three seeds remember I talked about this in a previous session we talked about the three seeds the seed of the woman who's associated with Eve in the garden of Eden and the adamic covenant the seed of abraham who's associated with the abrahamic covenant and the seed of david the seed of the woman associated with the adamic covenant he was came to crush the head of the serpent the seed of abraham comes to bring blessing to all the nations the seed of david comes to rule over all the nations forever so what matthew shows in this verse is that all three seeds have become one a cord of three strands is not easily broken and now all all of this is coming to fruition in uh, in Jesus uh, Christ. So that one verse, oh my goodness, a whole lot is packed into the first verse of the New Testament. Then Matthew proceeds in his gospel, and he shows that Jesus is also a new Moses, for he brings down bread from heaven. When we get to the account of the feeding of the uh, 5,000 um, in Matthew uh, 12, and uh uh, just as uh, Moses gave the miraculous bread, so Jesus does. And Jesus, uh, well, even earlier than that, on the Sermon on the Mount, you know, we see Moses went up on a mountaintop, gave the people divine law. Jesus, in Matthew five, goes up on a mountaintop, gives the people divine law. Not only is a divine law, but even he even corrects Moses. He goes back and says, "You know, you heard Moses said a few things. That it was pretty good, but I say to you, this is this is a better truth." Okay, so he he. Uh, takes it upon himself to, f- to fix up Moses' teaching. And a lot of Jews were probably listening to Jesus on the mountaintop saying, who the heck do you think you are, man? Correcting Moses? There's nobody higher than Moses but God. You know, who died and made you God? Okay, <laughs> I'm going to die and make myself God. No, something like that. That's not actually theology. There already is divide there. But in any event, that's the force of that. When Jesus, in what we call the six antitheses in uh, Matthew 5, he corrects the law of Moses. Jesus is showing himself to be a new Moses and one even better than Moses. And Jesus shows himself to be a new David once more by casting out demons. If you read the Gospels closely, you'll notice the typical thing that people say when Jesus casts out demons from people is, Can this man be the son of David? Have you ever thought to yourself, why do they say that? Why don't they say, can this man be the son of God? Or can this man be the Messiah? Or can this man be the prophet? But no, after an exorcism, they say, can this man be the son of David? And there's a reason for that. If you go back to 1 Samuel 16 and observe what happens there, David is anointed by the prophet Samuel. And then he receives the Holy Spirit on a permanent basis, which we talked about last week, how David was almost a participant in the new covenant in advance. And having received the Holy Spirit, uh, David, um, uh, the next thing he does, in fact, is go into the court of Saul, and he exorcises demons out of Saul through his music. And so David was the first exorcist in Scripture. And when D- Jesus does the same thing, the people say, Wow, can this man be the son of David, because he has this exorcistic power as well. So Jesus in his ministry comes to fulfill all the covenants, but this all comes to a head at the end of the Gospels, at the Passion, when uh, in a two-step process, Jesus inaugurates the new covenant. First, at the Last Supper, we're going to draw the image of uh, of the elements of the Last Supper. Jesus celebrates a final Passover with his Disciples, and he speaks over the cup of the Passover. It says, "This cup is the new covenant in my blood." And by saying "new covenant," uh, Jesus is drawing a straight line back to Jeremiah, um, and uh, saying, in an essence, that the promise of Jeremiah's famous oracle in Jeremiah 31:34. 31, verses thirty-one through thirty-four is now being fulfilled in this very room where we are celebrating this Passover ceremony. Okay, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. By the way, it is the pa- it is the Last Supper that makes Jesus self-gift into a sacrifice because the Passover was a sacrifice, the crucifixion was an execution. The only thing that makes the crucifixion into a liturgical act or a true sacrifice is that it's connected to the Last Supper, because Jesus, if we read the Gospels carefully, leaves the upper room before drinking the final cup, the fourth and final cup of the Passover ceremony. He goes out of the garden and, significantly, prays that the cup would pass from him, but but agrees to drink the cup that the Father gives him, and then. Uh, we we see our Lord going through the Passion, and then at the cross, he is offered that famous drink of soured wine, that last cup of the fruit of the vine. And there on the cross, in both Matthew and in John's Gospel, he drinks from the fruit of the vine, and that is the final cup of the uh, Passover. So our Lord extends the Passover all the way to of the cross. He kind of sus- liturgically suspends it and then completes the Passover with the the gift of his own body and blood on the cross as the sacrificial lamb. And when he does that, we see this significant event in scripture when the uh, soldiers come forward and pierce his side and out from his side, there came a flow of blood and water. This is in my opinion, the most dense image in all of Scripture because it has so many layers of meaning. Um, Let's go through them just briefly. We saw in Eden that a river of life flowed out of Eden, and we said that Eden was the first temple, the first sanctuary in salvation history. In John 2.21, Jesus identifies his body as the new temple. And so here is his body temple on the cross, and his body temple begins to flow with the river of life, which is this stream of blood and water coming out from his side. Um, That blood and water coming forth from his side is, in the first first hand, a symbol of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the true river of life, which will flow out of uh, the side of Christ. But why blood and water? That blood and the water symbolize the sacraments, because the typical way that the Spirit comes to us Is through uh, baptismal water and Eucharistic blood so we can see in fact the sacraments as a kind of river through time and space a river that begins to flow from Calvary in AD 33 and continues to flow through time and space to all parts of the world as far as Steubenville and Manhattan and northern Virginia, and Texas, and even to cultural backwaters like Southern California, and it continues to flow and bring the life-giving vivic- vivific- vivification of God. Okay, through through again, uh, baptismal water, Eucharistic blood, and the rest of the sacraments as well. So, blood and water once more. Blood and water flowed from the temple back in the days of Jesus because at festival time, like at Passover, up to a quarter of a million lambs would be sacrificed in the temple for the two million pilgrims that would come to Jerusalem to eat the Passover. And a quarter of a million lambs produces an enormous amount of blood, which was washed down drain pipes in the temple. and was jettisoned out the side of the temple mount, out of a big pipe where that flow of bloody water because they used buckets of water to wash that lamb's blood down the drains. It would gush out the side of the Temple Mount and flow down into the Kidron Valley and into the stream, of the, into the Brook Kidron that flew, flowed along the bottom of that valley. And for some pilgrims, they would actually have to ford a bloody stream to get into Jerusalem during Passover time. So when you see the flow of blood water from the side of the Christ, the early Jew, Jews saw that it's ah it's the bloody water coming forth from the new temple. And that's another image as well. And that's very true. The sacraments are the, that flow that come from our new temple, which is the body of Christ. Well, I have some verses here. Jesus predicted this. Out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. John 7.37. That's the Holy Spirit. Galatians 4.6. Paul says, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. That's that covenant relationship. A covenant is the extension of kinship by oath. So God swears an oath to give us his spirit. Spirit goes into us, makes us the family of God, establishes kinship with God. Now we're sons and daughters of God. Now we can cry out, Abba, Father. And so we have the courage to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, etc. So we've come full circle. And now this is what our diagram should look like. Notice how we began with a nuptial relationship with a tree of life and river of life in a perfect sanctuary eating from the tree of life we've gone all, through all these permutations through salvation history different kinds of food animal sacrifice human sacrifice bread from heaven a royal meal uh, a supernatural meal at a mountaintop all comes to fruition in the eucharist which is all of those things all those things wrapped up in one here again we have our sanctuary in the body of Christ. We have the, the the fruit of the tree of life here, which is the Eucharist. We have the river of life coming forth from our temple, which is the baptismal water flowing from the side of Christ that establishes us as <coughs> sons and daughters of God. You even come full circle to me having a coughing fit at the end of the presentation just to have that kind of inclusio at the end of... Uh, these, uh, these talks. So <clears throat> just briefly, excuse me, um, we've been talking about the house of bread, and I just want to share this image. Um, there's such a close relationship between the incarnation and the Eucharist, and I really want us to meditate on this in these remaining days of Advent as we approach Christmas. In the incarnation, God takes on human flesh in a supernatural act. Two natures become one. And then born in Bethlehem, which literally means the house of bread because it was a grain-growing region, the breadbasket of Judah, if you will, the Nebraska of Judah, if you will, uh, of the house and lineage of David. And the Blessed Mother gives birth to him, wraps him up, and lays him in a feed trough, that powerful image being given as food for the poor of the earth, because nothing is poorer than animals. They don't own a darn thing. So this, uh, God is giving himself as food uh, for all the poor of the earth, having taken on flesh, the baby placed in the manger. Now we think here of the Eucharist, where at every Eucharistic sacrifice, God takes on flesh once more, takes on the flesh of the host. Um, He, offers himself to us we are the poor of the earth that often act like animals and feed like animals so we come forward but our natures are elevated um, through participation of the eucharist our natures are elevated from an animal nature to a divine nature we experience this theosis that i'm sure that father would love to talk about since it's so important in the Easter tradition experience this divinization by by consuming the divine food because you are what you eat. And as we consume God, when we eat God, we become uh, like unto God. We become sharers of his nature. And so we enter into the house of bread. So every Eucharistic sacrifice is Bethlehem once more. Every time the epiclesis is prayed and the spirit comes down and transubstantiates uh, the sacred species, it is almost a recapitulation of the Incarnation. And this is why the Incarnation is so important, especially in the Eastern tradition and some traditions within, within the East. Christmas almost overshadows Easter because um, basically once God has become flesh, it's almost like everything else is a cleaning up act. It's kind of like D-Day and V-E-Day. Okay. once the beachhead is established at Normandy, the days of the evil empire were numbered. You know, the victory had essentially been accomplished. Everything after D-Day was just a mopping up uh, operation. So once God establishes the beachhead of human nature, uh, he, he becomes the baby in Bethlehem. The days of Satan's evil empire are numbered and everything else is a mopping up operation um a little bit of an exaggeration but you know it's a way to think of it and then and then the cross is ve day when when it is finished okay it's all mopped up we we uh, come into berlin and we take over so um we we conquer the evil one so this is this is beauty so every time we go to mass in advent we're already experiencing christmas in a way Um, but we are coming to the house of bread. Every Catholic church is Beit Lechem. Every Catholic church is the house of bread for the nations, the bread that gives the new covenant. Now, if you um, want this uh, little cheat sheet with uh, the major covenants of salvation history uh, and kind of drawn a little bit differently, but uh, with some information on it to fit on one sheet of paper, I'd be happy to send that to you. Um, all you have to do is email me, and uh, you can do that. Oh, I thought I had my email. i will going to give you my email address in just a minute here.
2: You can, uh, uh, Doctor, you can, you can send that on to Daniel, and we'll post it on the page for this, for this talk so that people awesome. can participate. That would be sure. great.
1: And uh, I'll just mention my book here. Um, my presentation drawings are uh, uh, drawn from my book, Bio Basics for Catholics, that runs over all of salvation history. And then recently, also New Testament Basics for Catholics, which about twice as long as Bible Basics, just covering the New Testament. But if Bible Basics is about thirty thousand feet. New Testament Basics is about ten thousand feet, and uh, goes through much much more in depth through uh, the books of the New Testament. And um, so those are available from uh, Ave Maria. And uh, there's my um, email webpage. Uh, I blog on the. Uh, Sunday readings uh, every week uh, at the thesacredpage.com. If you want to go into the uh, readings for the coming Sunday from the perspective of a Bible scholar, uh, you can check out my blog there. So thank you very much.
2: So we have some questions in our question and answer box. Yeah, I'll jump I'll jump in there. We've got a couple of questions on the same thing, which is the significance of frankincense and myrrh. And Monsignor Pope will probably be getting more into this on Sunday as, as Professor... <laughs> Uh, Garland was mentioning, but maybe it's uh, be for a quick uh, quick answer on this point about the importance of frankincense and myrrh in the Old Testament, Isaiah 60, and so forth, and then they're, they're
1: uh, coming forward then in, in the story. Yeah, um, so um, frankincense and myrrh are mentioned together um, only in the Song of Songs um, outside of uh, Matthew. And um, you can see that, uh, um, for example, uh, let me pull up the passages here. Uh, Songs 3-6 and Songs 4-6, those two passages mention uh, uh, (coughs) frankincense adjacent to each other. Um, (coughs) It's true that in Isaiah 60, which is a passage that we use in Epiphany. It talks about, <coughs> <coughs> oh, heavens, gold and frankincense being brought. Isaiah sixty, verse six. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't exclude a reference there. I'm sure that Matthew is aware of that as well. So the gold and frankincense are, are coming. Um, but, uh, but yeah, again, gold and frankincense are royal gifts. They are, uh, ideas are. Realities that are associated with Solomon, who uh, who brought this abundance of gold and frankincense and other spices into Jerusalem, and um, it's associated with the Song of Songs, where this great wealth and these wonderful perfumes and sweet smelling um, uh, substances are being used. But then the the, the pair of frankincense and myrrh particularly occurs in uh, the Song of Songs, the nuptial contexts, where, <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> where the um you know they were the ancient colognes and perfumes you know you, you, you fly somewhere nowadays and and you got the duty-free shop in the airport that sells the stuff from dolce and gabbana and christian dior <laughs> all this kind of this, this stuff that's ridiculously advertised and you know, it's supposed to be such a great deal that you don't have to pay tax well it costs 150 bucks an ounce anyway so like, like you're really doing it to save money right but anyway um in the ancient times, frankincense, myrrh, aloes, these things were the, um, the, the very expensive perfumes, the white diamonds, the Trésor by Lancome, the whatever you wanted, the Stetson, you know. Um, they were those, and, and it was uh, not gender specific. Uh, they were used in both men and women especially for the royal wedding where the, the royalty had the money to afford these, these beautiful substances. So the frankincense and myrrh being brought to Jesus, yes, the golden frankincense allusion to Isaiah 60, but the frankincense and myrrh allusion to the Song of Songs. The baby in the manger is this Davidic king. But remember that there is this bridegroom idea wrapped up with the Davidic king all the way through from 2 Samuel 5, where Israel comes to David and they say, we are your bone and flesh, and then they make a royal covenant, okay? So echoing the words from the, from the garden uh, of the relationship of Adam and Eve. And uh, 2 Samuel 17 talks about the people of Israel returning to the Davidic king like a bride returns to her husband. And then the royal wedding psalm, Psalm 45, is, is Solomon, the son of David, as the super, really the divine bridegroom solomon is called god he's called El in psalm 45 anticipating the union of human and divine nature that's also anticipated in isaiah 9 um, so yeah the, the frankincense of myrrh is marking off you know the bridegroom baby and it's very much connected with these themes of like the the son of david the solomonic son of david
3: uh mary R's question on uh you know romans 9 through 11 this could be but could you briefly explain uh jesus repeatedly talks of his mission to the lost tribes of israel does it seem that jesus is referring to more than the samaritans i know that most of the people of the lost tribes were removed from their homeland could he be referring to the lost tribes hidden among the gentiles how do you view this
1: yeah absolutely that's a great softball that you know it's kind of pitched right into my sweet spot because uh i love to talk about this there's two ways that uh that, that Jesus goes after the lost tribes one is through the Samaritans which is visible and you see that in John 4 acts 6 where they go out to uh, Samaria and they reap a big harvest there and that's where we get you know the, the first visible expression of confirmation where Peter and John go down and after they've been baptized seal them with the Holy Spirit and um, so we have this this big conversion among the Samaritans who are the last visible remnants of the northern ten tribes but then the majority of the northern ten tribes got scattered among the nations as we know from second king 17 and so how are we going to get them back well you know we used to say in the cold war uh nuke them all and let god sort them out <laughs> okay yeah that's kind of the evangelistic goal of the church nuke everyone with the gospel and let god sort them out i mean, I mean meaning We're going to spread the gospel everywhere. We're going to convert all the nations. We're going to throw the net of the gospel to all the fish, pull them in, and then God is going to know which fish are the descendants of Naphtali, of Issachar, of Asher, of the other tribes. And and so it's by the church's mission to the Gentiles that the church also accomplishes the mission of bringing the scattered children of Israel back to god it's not like god is only concerned with germans if those germans are also unwitting descendants of zebulun or something like that no god is concerned with the germans and the swahili's and the chinese and so on for their own sake but also among the chinese the swahili's and the germans there are descendants of the ten tribes that uh don't even know their identity don't even know that they have the blood of israel flowing in their veins and yet they hear the gospel and they respond. And you see this in, as, as uh, Professor Garland mentioned, there's this famous passage in Romans 11, verses 25 and 26, where St. Paul says a very curious thing. Um, uh, he says, um, and I'll just look it up so I get I get the quote uh, accurate. Um, this is something that uh, Dr. Hahn, a uh, mutual teacher, myself and Dr. Garland, um, has, has written quite a bit about. Um, But you have this curious phrase that a lot of scholars don't understand, where St. Paul uh, says, I want you to understand this mystery, brethren. A harding has come upon part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles come in. And then literally the Greek says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. And people scratch their heads. How can St. Paul be saying The full number of the Gentiles will come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. But if you see Israel as scattered among the nations, you know, the other ten tribes, and then we go out to the nations and bring them in, then, then the vision of Isaiah 66 is fulfilled, because the end of Isaiah 66, the prophet sees a great pilgrimage of the nations to Zion. And then he says, your, your brothers and sisters, your Israelite brothers and sisters, will come along with the nations on dromedaries and being carried in their arms, and so on. They'll come back with the nations to and and that's what's really happening in the evangelistic mission of the church. Uh, I think even to this day. So that's that's my that's not dogma, but I, I think uh, I think that's a I think that's good biblical theology. Uh, Naomi asks, would you please explain the significance of the fourth cup not drunk by Jesus at the Last Supper? Thank you. Okay, in real brief. We know from uh, rabbinic literature that is to say jewish literature that even in jesus day most likely the passover had already been ritualized to include four cups of wine Uh, and there were names and ideas associated with all four cups and when we read the gospels very closely especially luke which gives us the fullest account of the last supper we can identify in luke certainly the drinking of the second cup there's two drunks Two cups drunk in, in Luke's account. The first cup that's mentioned specifically appears to be the second cup of the ceremony. The cup that Jesus blesses and passes out among the disciples as the Eucharistic cup appears to be the third cup of the ceremony. After the third cup, you sang a hymn, which was called the Great Hallel. It consisted of Psalms 113 through 118, chanted one after another. Very profound. You got to read that sometime on Holy Thursday, read Psalms 113 through 118. And then remember that those psalms are the last thing off the lips of our Lord in the upper room before he goes out. So they sing the hymn, the Gospels say, but then rather than drinking the last cup, they go out right after the hymn. And, uh, they don't seem, they don't appear to finish the ceremony. But like I said, Jesus goes out, prays for the passing of the cup, which I think is really connected to this idea. And, but then then agrees to drink the cup and then uh and then we go to the cross and matthew and, and john both make it clear that he drinks um of the fruit of the vine um, he drinks this soured wine in greek the oxos, uh which is kind of like a wine vinegar that still had this alcohol content so it was still an anesthetic. and so he drinks at the cross and then he says it is consummated uh, quite literally the, the greek is rendered very well by the English and the Latin consummatum, Okay, uh, it has all the same character, all the same connotations, including the idea of marital consummation. It's very rich, very. The, the the term connotes quite a bit, but what is being finished? Well, in one sense, like the marriage is being consummated. We talked about that theme, but also that the, the the Passover is being finished. You know, as he he's, he finishes that. You know. Uh, Ita missa est. You know, it's 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 like that. It's like that finality. And so, if you view it that way, that, that this is this is speculative. This is not dogma. We could present a lot of circumstantial evidence for this understanding. You can't prove it, but nonetheless, like St. Thomas has says, it, this seems very fitting because if this is true, then what Jesus is doing is extending the liturgy of the Passover all the way to the cross. They become united as one liturgical act. That seems so appropriate. And once you see it, just. Wow, yeah, that that's, it just makes a lot of sense. So, Dave asks, how do you explain the representation of Christ's sacrifice on the cross through the Incarnation to Protestants today? Since you're originally not Catholic, how can you explain it in 30 seconds to one minute to a non-Catholic? <laughs> uh, okay, I, I'm not sure exactly where that's Going can somebody help me out here. Uh, give me a little prompt. I'm not getting what the nugget is uh, That's being asked here uh.
3: Um, I think maybe he when you when you mentioned uh, The incarnation in the uh, eastern tradition sometimes might overshadow the cross. I think maybe he's uh drawing on that I Let's see. Um exchange Christ sacrifice of the cross
2: You know I wouldn't I, I would uh, I wouldn't mind picking that one up and giving a, a 15 to 30 second answer if you don't mind doctor
1: No go ahead father take it away Yeah the
2: the question's not clear but I'll tell you right now if you want to speak with a Protestant about the incarnation you have to go back to the fact that what John told us in his epistle that God is love and love is the sharing of our life the incarnation is all about that reality and that love is real. And this is the thing that Luther couldn't take. And it is the, the, really the, the foundation stone of the errors of Luther and those that follow him. It, and the difference between a Protestant and a Catholic fundamentally is the reality that that life comes into us and truly changes us. And most Protestants will agree with you on that. They'll accept God's love, but in their theology, there's a different, and there's a problem there. And so what we have to fundamentally go to is not what divides us, but what's actually they're going to accept, and that is that God is love, and he loves us, and love is the giving of one's life, the love. And if that's true, if that's true, then all the things the church teaches about our transformation and baptism in the Eucharist, everything the church teaches is about that point that God's love actually transforms creation and divinizes it and fills it with life. This is what the Incarnation is all about. We've got to go back to that fundamental point. Rather than say, here's how you and I disagree, let's go back to the fact that God is love and agree there. But then let's talk about what love really is, see that in the Incarnation of Christ, and then understand our baptism in that context.
1: Dave follows up and he says, uh, how to explain the representation where they say we serve a risen Christ. I think what Dave might be referring to is the fact that in Protestantism, the cross is displayed as empty because the Christ is risen. And yet we use, we represent him with a crucifix. And uh, so how do you p- explain the crucifix to, to a Protestant? And um, I, I would say that the, the reason why we as Catholics use a crucifix, and, and I should clarify too, that we sometimes use blank crosses as well. We sometimes use empty crosses as well. It's not exclusively the crucifix. The crucifix actually comes in much later in church history. You don't find the crucifix in the very, uh, in the very early church. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but the reason why the crucifix is so popular among us as Catholics nowadays is because we have a good understanding that in this life, we share the sufferings of Christ. And I can really speak to this from personal experience because before I became Catholic, I did not have a good understanding of how our sufferings contributed to our growth in holiness. My understanding of salvation, I'm dead serious. I was a very well-educated Protestant, went to a very fine Protestant seminary. I still believe it's a fine seminary. It helped me become Catholic, actually. But anyway, it was that fine. But but my idea of the redemption was like this. Many of you will remember those old uh, scrubbing bubbles commercials that were on TV. Remember that bath cleanser that had the scrubbing bubbles? And remember their slogan, you know? we work hard so you don't have to, you know, and then they would scrub and they'd all go down the drain. Okay. And so this idea was, you know, you buy this bath cleaner and it works hard so you don't have to work hard. And that was how I used to think about the redemption. Christ worked hard so I don't have to. Okay. Christ suffered so I don't have to. That was a, That's a very Protestant way of thinking. Then when I started going through suffering in my life with the birth of my first child and unemployment and, and dropping out of seminary and having career failures and things like this, I had no way to understand that as part of my sanctification. And I thought, I shouldn't be suffering because Christ suffered, so I don't have to suffer. So this must be, I must be out of God's will, or something like that. And I literally, folks, went into a clinical depression over this theological issue. That I did not come out of except through an act of God. I had an experience of God in the presence of a chaplain, an old chaplain friend of mine, who was a very holy man. and He kind of mediated God's presence to me and I broke out of this depression. It was a dramatic turning point. It was the beginning of my journey towards Catholicism. Years later, when I was learning about Catholicism, it suddenly dawned on me that this, we share in Christ's sufferings in order to share in his glory. And I don't know how I missed it because it's in every Protestant's favorite book, which is Romans. And it's in the most famous chapter, which is Romans 8. And um, Romans eight seventeen, which is the very heart of Romans 8, says, We are children of God. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And that's so powerful that because that means that the sufferings are helping us become like Jesus and they are leading to our glorification. They really have meaning. They really have purpose. They're not random, they're not bizarre, they're not accidental, but they're planned by God, and they're leading us to holiness. And that's so, it's so powerful. It so gives us the power to to uh, to to push through. So it's that idea of redemptive suffering. That's why we use the crucifix. And so I try to say that briefly, but I mean, this is like experiential for me, you know, as having gone from a blank cross person to now somebody who embraces the crucifix and understanding what that means. What that means is acquiring an understanding of redemptive suffering, which I did not have before.
0: We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture.